Taylor College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, December 10, 1971, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, Part 2, the New Testament, considering, continuing the study of Breakoff's book, Archaeology and the New Testament. We will begin this afternoon by a reading of the I will read to you this long-delayed material from Morton's book in the Tips of St. Paul. I think you will find from this, this is an interesting book and uh, relevant to this kind of a course and worth reading just for the sake of what's in the book. Now, this is about his visit to Ephesus, or you can't really say to Ephesus, it's to the ruins of where Ephesus once was. <clears throat> the ruins of Ephesus lie some distance from the village. The Temple of Diana is about one mile away, and the site of the city itself is another mile or so to the southwest. I walked along a dusty road. Before this road leaves the village, there is a railed-in garden, peopled by about 20 headless figures. They are sadly mutilated statues from the ruins of Ephesus, carefully mounted on plinths and standing with their headless bodies facing the road. They form a ghostly introduction to a dead city. The road was lined on either side with bean fields, and with fields in which the wheat was already three feet high. Peasants bent over root crops. Oxen came swaying across the dark earth, drawing plows as primitive as any in the tomb reliefs of Egypt. The country bore that well-washed, brilliant air which follows a week of rain in Asia Minor. So like today, you know, in Western Pennsylvania, a well washed air. And the hot sun seemed to say it would never rain again. The earth luxuriated in the heat. Poppies waved in the corn. Yellow sea flowers, wild mustard, anemones, small marguerites, and forget me nots grew beside the road and on every space of unturned ground. Wherever I looked, I saw little chips of white marble. There's hardly a wall within miles of Ephesus in which you will not find marble that once formed a part of a column or a pavement. I turned off to the right to follow a narrow path that edged the field of wheat. I came to a big stagnant pond covered so thickly with a snowy water reed that at first it looked like white marble. As I stood still, the frogs that haunt this pond by the millions set up their rekkekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekekek
So when I beheld the temple of Ephesus, calling to the crowd, all these marvels were eclipsed. I sat there listening to the chorus of the frogs, wondering if in 2,000 years' time, some student of England, wandering among marshes and brambles on Ludgate Hill, would look in vain for a relic of St. Paul's Cathedral. 2,000 years ago, Ephesus appeared permanent and invincible. It would have seemed impossible to anyone at that time that the Temple of Diana should become a stagnant pond. When Paul came to Ephesus, this temple and the powerful organizations connected with it were at the height of their fame. Diana of the Ephesians was known the world over. She was not the lovely, graceful Artemis of the Greeks, the fifth sister of Apollo. She was a goddess from remote antiquity, a dark Asiatic being, like some ogre from the past of man. Like the Aphrodite of Paphos, she was believed to have fallen from heaven, and she may therefore have originally been a meteorite invested with miraculous quality by the superstitious mind of early man. There is a statue of the Ephesian Diana in the Naples Museum. It shows a queer, barbaric figure. The lower part swaddled it like an Egyptian mummy, hands and face those of a woman. The upper portion is studded with a number of objects which, in the opinion of Sir William Ramsey, are really the ova of bees. These eggs indicate her function as the goddess of fertility. The bee was the symbol of Ephesus. It is found on most of the coins and is one of the most beautifully modeled bees in ancient art. The goddess was the queen bee, and the temple organization included a crowd of priests or drones who dressed like women and a crowd of priestesses known as Melissi, who, who represented the worker bees. This extraordinary organization developed in Anatolia from the primitive belief that in the life of the bee was seen the divine intention. Although the Greeks believed the queen bee was a male, the Asiatics, who evolved the worship of the Ephesian bee goddess, found a dress cult on a true knowledge of the sex of these insects. The drone priests and the worker priestesses were assisted by an immense concourse of flute players, heralds, trumpeters, scepter bearers, surfers, sweepers of the sanctuary, dancers, acrobats, and robbers of the divinity. A special mounted force of temple police patrolled the area and maintained order within the territory of the goddess. Among the signs of Hellenization were the annual games in honor of Artemis, the Artemisia, which attracted thousands of pilgrims from all parts of the world. At this time, the harbor of Ephesus was filled with pilgrim ships. No work was done for a month, while the great throng of Ephesians and strangers enjoyed a daily program of athletic contests, plays, and solemn sacrifices. Thousands of silver shrines were purchased by the visitors to take home with them as souvenirs of their pilgrimage. The temple was visited by awestruck strangers, an effigy of the goddess served before the altar, but was usually concealed by a veil which had the peculiarity of being raised toward the ceiling, unlike that of Jupiter at Olympia, which was let down by ropes to the pavement, or the veil in the temple of Isis, described by Aquilius, which was drawn aside at break of day. Why, I wonder, was Diana's veil drawn upward? There must have been a reason for the undignified procedure of first revealing the feet, the feet of the goddess and her body before the head and face came into view. The statue of Diana was wooden, but the writers of, the, of antiquity differ widely on the kind of wood that was used. 
Some say the image was of beech or elm, some of cedar, while others say it was made of vine stock. On most of the coins on which the goddess appears, two lines run from her hands to the ground. These represent rods, probably of gold, which were necessary to keep her in an erect position because of her top heavy shape. Now, parenthesis, don't you think a goddess ought to be able to sort of maintain her balance just on her own? Her top heavy shape. On great festival days, the statue of Diana was taken through Ephesus on a car drawn sometimes by mules and sometimes by stags or fawns. And on these solemn occasions, hymns to Diana were sung by day and night, and the streets of Ephesus resounded with the city's cry, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Over 60 years ago, the weed-covered pond revealed its secret to an English architect, J.T. Wood. His researches were financed by the British Museum. The temple had been lost for centuries. Wood sunk experimental pits all over the site for six years without any sign of success. Many a man would have given up in despair, but this was the passion of Wood's life. He was convinced he was fated to discover the site. He may have been inspired, had been inspired, by Edward Falconer's book on the lost temple and by his conjectural reconstruction of it. In the face, face of such faith and such stubborn determination, difficulties were as nothing. Wood suffered from malaria, from Turkish interference, from shortage of funds, and from distinguished visitors. Still, he persisted year after year, conducting his researches in a stovepipe hat and a tightly buttoned frock coat, like the hardy Victorian that he was. Can you imagine the appearance of this guy? I have seen a faded photograph of him in this unlikely garb, taken at the bottom of a deep pit after his triumph. Wood, bearded and tightly buttoned, stands with an air of victory, one hand resting on a drum of the discovered temple. Alas, poor Wood. If only he had known that when the photograph was taken, he was standing immediately above the spectacular foundation deposit of thousands of gold and electrum objects and statues of Artemis in bronze and ivory, now in the museum in Istanbul, which D.C. Hogarth was to discover beneath the altar 30 years later. Which discovery was, however, one of the romances of archaeology. After sinking pits all over Ephesus and finding himself no nearer to the temple, he dug one day in the theater, the same building in which the riot described in Acts occurred, and there unearthed a Roman inscription. This announced that a certain Roman, C. Vibius Solitarius, who lived in Ephesus about 50 years after Paul had been there, had given to the temple of Diana many silver and gold images weighing six to seven pounds each. You think you'd have to believe pretty hard in your religion to give many silver and gold images weighing six to seven pounds each to a temple? You know, this would uh, strain your savings account. Do a thing like this. He had also left a sum in trust for the repair of the images and the cleaning of them, decreeing in addition that they were when they were carried in procession from the temple to the theater during the birthday feast of Diana. They were to enter the city by the Magnesian Gate and to leave it on their return journey by the Corinthian Gate. This wide circuit of the city was doubtless prompted by his vanity. He wanted as many people as possible to see this munificent gift. Wood grasped at once the importance of this inscription. Thanks to the vanity of a man who had been dead over 18 centuries, he was given an almost certain clue. 
If they could find these two gates and the ropes leading from them, they would take them to the temple. He set to work with redoubled energy and discovered first the Magnesian gate and then the Corinthian gate. Following the road, he was led on the last day of the year 1869, at a moment when his funds had expired, to the side of the temple, lying 20 feet below the modern ground level. What a moment that was for Witt. He had suffered from fever every night for three weeks, and the excitement was almost too much for him. But he rallied and carried on. He discovered columns, the pavement of the temple, the sculptured drums, which are an architectural feature distinguishing the temple of Diana from every other temple of the Greek world. The story of this well-earned triumph is told by Wood himself in a discursive and readable book entitled Discoveries at Ephesus. Among his visitors was Dr. Schliemann, who at that time had not yet discovered Troy. He was longing by a desire to feel his feet on the pavement of Diana's temple. And as he looked around him, he remarked a little wistfully that Wood had won immortality. It must have been an interesting meeting. Wood, who had realized his ambition, and Schliemann, who was about to win greater fame by establishing the site of Troy and putting into operation his uncanny gift of forcing the earth to stand and deliver whatever gold treasures it happened to conceal. Wood's weighty discoveries were transported to England in a man of war. Archaeological transport had been one of the Navy's sidelines since the time of Lord Elgin. Archaeologists, in fact, became slightly petulant when captains refused to enlarge their hatches to accommodate the more massive fragments of the ancient world. Thanks to Wood and the British Navy, the superb artistry of the sculptured drums of Ephesus can today be admired in the British Museum. If St. Paul ever mounted the steps of this temple, it is possible that his garments touched these stones. The city of Ephesus lay a mile or so away from the temple of Diana, the temple was built on low-lying ground. The city occupied the higher ground, which sloped upward to Mount Creon. A walk of 15 minutes along a lonely road brought me to the most impressive ruins of Asia Minor. Malarial mosquitoes have driven away every human being. Ephesus stands dignified and alone in its death. Here are ruins of the kind that Piranesi loved to etch, a melancholy mixture of fractured architecture and clinging vegetation with no sign of life but a goat herd leaning on a broken sarcophagus or a lonely peasant outlined against a mournful sunset. Ephesus is really like that. Few people ever visit it. The Turkish lads who herd the goats of Seljuk nearby sometimes wander through its marble streets, but they are not too fond of doing so. Ephesus has a weird, haunted look. The sea which once washed the harbor walls of Ephesus is no longer visible from the ruins. It began to recede even in Roman times. The plain on which the temple and the lower part of the town were built lies today beneath 20 to 30 feet of silt, brought down in the course of centuries by the river Caister. Once a fair lagoon, this huge malarial marsh grows nothing but tufts of wiry grass and beds of reeds that rustle in the lightest wind. The sound of the wind in the reeds of Ephesus can be heard from the hilltops. It is an eerie memory of that haunted place. I saw a peasant at work in the great stadium. His bones are still marked in the earth. He looked up startled when I walked toward him, as I might have been some, as if I might have been some Ephesian who had burst his way from a tomb. Men once 
What was beast in this great scooped out over in the rock where a peasant now plants his beans? I looked for traces of the rock in which the wild animals were kept, but all sign of them has vanished. Paul's reference to having fought with beasts at Ephesus is probably a metaphorical reference to the fury of his human opponents, for it is unlikely either that a Roman citizen would have been flung to the beast or that any man so condemned could have survived. But Paul's metaphor was no doubt prompted by some event which had taken place in this arena. That the apostle was familiar with the procedure during these hideous displays is, of course, natural. But many people missed the point of his reference when he wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus, and wrote, I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as men doomed to death, unquote. The significant word is last, because those doomed to death, generally condemned prisoners, were always paraded as a grand finale in the amphitheater, stripped naked, they came in at the end of a program of boxing, racing, and chariot contests to face the fangs of wild animals. I climbed above the stadium to the lower slopes of Mount Creon so that I could get a bird's eye view of Ephesus. I saw the high shoulder of Mount Corephus running out towards the sea, a great rampart sheltering the whole city to the southwest, and on the end of this long promontory stands a two-story building of ancient date called St. Paul's Prison. I understood as I looked down from this height why even in Roman times, the setting up of the pasture plain gave the engineers a lot of trouble. The harbor of Ephesus was an artificial basin lying within a few hundred yards of the city and approached by a canal. I am sure that St. Paul must have compared it with the man-made harbor of his native Tarsus. Dredging must have been as necessary at Ephesus as it is in modern Glasgow. And there must have been the constant fear that ships would desert the long canal and the comparatively small landlocked dock for the magnificent open harbor of Smyrna a few miles to the north. What an astonishing view rewarded those who came up this channel from the sea. The white city lay immediately ahead of them, spread out in splendor at the foot of Mount Creon and grouped on the flanks of Mount Corephus. As they glanced a little to the left, they would see the Temple of Diana standing in the plain, shining with the brilliant blues and reds and golds with which her marble was embellished. This building lay due east and west, so that the approaching traveler would have a magnificent three-quarter view of it as the ship came up slowly into the harbor of Ephesus. I spent hours wandering over the ruins, which are spread over an immense area. Sitting on a fallen pillar, I ate the sandwiches I had brought with me. A few yards away, those the stately steps of a temple leading upward to nothing. Little yellow flowers grew out of cracks in the marble. A fragment of stone bearing the name of Augustus Caesar lay upside down, scored with hundreds of deep scratches as if someone had sharpened a knife on it. <clears throat> a few paces away, covered by <clears throat> a screen of tamarisk bushes, were the entrances to vaults. Perhaps they had been a strong room for some of the gold and wealth of Ephesus. While I looked idly at them, I saw the tamarisks tremble slightly as a little brown animal came out of the darkness. I thought at first it was a fox, but at second glance it showed him to be a jackal. He lifted his sharp little head and sniffed the air, then he yawned, just like any ordinary brown dog. At that moment, however, a puff of wind blew from the forest the paper in which my sandwiches had been wrapped. He saw me. I had a glimpse, a brief glimpse of round eyes gazing straight at me and a small black nose moving as it sniffed the air. The next moment he had vanished. 
so lonely, so silent, as Ephesus. I was sorry when this little creature had gone. I remembered the words of the Revelation. Under the church, the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things saith he that upholdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I have something against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first work, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place. Unquote. I looked toward the tamarisk bushes. I listened for the bittern's call. I heard the chorus of the frogs in the marshes. Truly, the candlestick of Ephesus has been removed out of its place. I sat in the theater of Ephesus. The enormous semicircle lay below me. The white chairs on which the seats had been set protruded from the covering of brushwood. A fig tree grew out of the chair several feet below, and I looked over its leaves to the plain where the ghost of a straight road led through the marsh toward the harbor. There were the white ruins to the left of the road, showing in the marsh the bones of an exhumed skeleton, and to the right, queer shapes hiding under the grass and tamarisks. This theater once held an audience of 24,000 people. Although rebuilt after St. Paul's time, the structure is essentially the same as that in which the silversmiths riot occurred. I opened the New Testament and read the brief account of Paul's life at Ephesus. Sitting in the ruined theater of Ephesus, this scene came to life again. It was easy to forget the weeds growing between the stones, the trees springing from the seats, the fallen columns, and the broken stage. I seemed to see this theater shining in its glory, the streets no longer white shadows under the earth, but thronged with excited crowds, <coughs> buzzing with question and answer. And above the noise of the crowd, I seemed to hear the shout, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Then the whole scene fell apart, and I was sitting in a ruined place with a dead road running into the marsh, but from this road, where the green water lies in pools, I heard the same chorus which filled the air at the temple of Diana, as the high croaking of the frogs shaped itself into a rhythm. Great is Diana, great is Diana, great is Diana of the Ephesians. I walked back along the dusty road from Ephesus, and when I came to the cornfields beside the road, I took a farewell glance. I took a farewell glance at the site of Diana's temple. As I passed through the corn, I heard the frog chorus from Aristophanes in full blast. As I came within sight of the pond, there was silence. They had heard me. Gradually one, then another gained confidence. Great, 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 they piped, but not quite yet sure of themselves. Then a bold frog piped up, the greatest Diana. And in a second, the whole chorus was crashing out over the desolate quagmire, greatest Diana of the Ephesians. Now, uh, that gives you a sidelight on what Ephesus was like in its glory and the frog pond that it is today. And, uh, Six times this glory, I wonder, so fast is the glory of this world. I think that's a sample, though, of the, I encourage you to read this book sometime. Get your girlfriend or boyfriend or parents or somebody to buy you one for Christmas or for your birthday except that. That's a book, kind of a book you keep all your life and read and reread for the value of the thing better. Now, let's see. Mr. Harris, we have somewhat for the... This is on tissue paper, and all of you will get a better one than next week. Uh, also, 
before we go on somewhat with the book of Revelation, I want to call your attention to two things. Here are two identical copies of a back issue of the National Geographic magazine, 1958, December 1958. It's nearly 20 years old. 58 to well, it's over, over 10 years old. And this has a very interesting article with many colored pictures of the illustrating uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's entitled, The Men Who Hid the Dead Sea Scrolls. Part of the pictures in this are photographs of the scrolls and what's being done on them and the area and actual scenes. And part of them are paintings made by an artist, somebody getting baptized in the special baptism at Kuhl, where they had this ceremony, at Kumran. And uh, from what I can see, the uh, pictures here and uh, so forth are uh, very true and faithful to what is known about the Dead Sea Scrolls community. Now, um, National Geographic, just by and large on the whole, is not a fully reliable source of theological learning. And uh, you may find something here and there that's uh, about the connection between the Dead Sea Scrolls and Christianity or something like that that um, you ought to choke on a little bit. But, uh, on the other hand, this is very well worth looking through, and if one picture is worth a thousand words, this will give you a great deal. And I have two copies of this. They're identical, and I would like to test these out to two students to look them over. You ought to look at every picture and maybe read part of the material, but anyway, look at the pictures and read the headings under the pictures of this particular article on the Sea Scrolls. It has eight photographs and maps and five color paintings, as well as some pages of text. Now, uh, who uh, would like to take these two and bring them back Monday so two other students can go? Don't any iron, any children on roommates, are you? Well, Bill and I just made it first. That's the fact to uh, Yeah, here's your food for a whole year. I recommend this as a reduces 
God. They only ate twice a day anyhow. Every day you get a half a breakfast and a half a supper. You'd think this would, uh, Mr. James, encourage a person to count to a hundred before he'd express his opinions on everything. So they were extremely strict and um, they completely lacked the element of love that is characteristic of early Christianity. These people were, they out Pharisees the Pharisees. But see, this is a very good book on them by F.F. Bruce. And then there's one here by William Lassore of Fuller Seminary, California. Uh, although he has a French name, he is an American. Get Sea Scrolls and the Christian Faith. You can get this either cloth-bound or paperback. Published by Moody Press. It originally had the title Amazing Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Faith, but he has now owned that down to just Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Faith, leaving the amazement out. But this is also a uh, very informative and um, oh, quite uh, accurate and authoritative book on this same general subject. Now, uh, we were dealing with the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, and uh, let's see, questions 106 through 109, I take it, have been answered by what we read about it. And uh, also, uh, um, 110. What was there about Ephesus that long outlived its commercial importance as a sequel? This is 110. You will find this material on page 123 in the book. And it was an important Roman city long after, let's say, um, um, the sea traffic, the ocean-borne or seaborne trade had come to an end due, due to the harbor becoming so clogged up that it was unusual. And uh, Ephesus finally, uh, let's say, died along with the city. Archaeology has shown the city outlived its declining usefulness as a seaport. It was... Um, famous city from the standpoint of the Roman government and culture, even after it was no longer a commercial success. Now, the next one is Smyrna, 111. What characteristic, similarly characteristic of the statement praising the city of Smyrna, and how is this tied in with the letter to Smyrna in the book of Revelation? What is the statement that is similarly characteristic of the city of Smyrna? Well, a crown of life. And um, who wears crowns? Well, kings and queens wear crowns. Also, clowns in the Barnum Bay Circus. But chiefly, kings and queens wear crowns. It's a symbol of royalty and honor. The New Testament uses two words for crowns. Stephanos and uh, diadema. A diadem and a stephanos. Stephanos is a crown of victory such as the athletes in the Olympic Games were given, and the diadem is the crown of royalty, such as a king would have. Now, Ephesus, um, everything about Ephesus had crowns on it. It has been called the violet crowned, and so Athens is called violet crowned, and um, Ephesus, or Smyrna, I was thinking about here, was uh, styled the crown of Ionia, this part of Asia Minor. And in many references, from the ancient writers used the simile of a crown in connection with this city. How does this tie in with the letter to Ephesus in the book of Revelation? What is the promise to the one who gains the victory over 
sin in the battle of life, yeah, he that overcometh, I will give him a crown of life. He that faithful unto death, I will give thee a crown of life. And um, I suppose, how many of you ever had Dr. Wilcox's course in the history of the church? Now you come to this one open mind too. Polycarp, um, aged Christian, 80 years old, burned to death in Smyrna for his faith and was told by the Roman proconsul to deny his faith and save his life. He said he hated to run a man 80 years old to death. And Polycarp said, 80 years old have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I now deny my Lord and Savior? And he was burned to death. Polycarp was the one generation removed from the Apostle John. Now, uh, he had... Uh, he had known John the Apostle, writer of part of the New Testament. Pergamum, whose name is connected with the word for parchment. This is where a parchment was produced, apparently. And this was a seat of the um, Roman government in the province of Asia. Well, what was the importance of Pergamum at the time when the book of Revelation was written? What practice there would be offensive to the Christians in the city? Now, what was it about Roman life in the period of the empire that especially outraged the Christians? Some things uh, wouldn't shock them too badly, but this was something that did. Well, the worship of the living emperor, you know, when she read in prior religions, this started with uh, deifying not the living emperor, but his genius, his ideal of theoretical double. The emperor, as he ought to be, was honored with divine honors. Then, uh, still later, the emperor, after he was dead, honored as a god. And finally, they came to it and honored the living emperor as divine. Uh, of course, uh, height of uh, not only nonsense, but uh, extreme idolatry, honoring the emperor as divine. Now, it was Pergamum where this, let's uh, blasphemous man worship was centered in Asia Minor. And this would be very abhorrent to the Christians of this place. And uh, it is possible that the reference to Satan's seat being there is uh, a reference to this, or it is possible that this was a reference to, um, say, uh, 113, here is a paragraph on this in the book, an image for an altar, an altar to Zeus. Look at your book, uh, page... 126 is the present ruins of this throne-like altar to Zeus. Page 127, the whole business as reconstructed in a museum in Germany. This is incidentally in East Germany where they worship uh, neither Christ nor Zeus anymore. But uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the dictator of East Germany. Oh, Obert. Obert, yeah, that's it. All right. Uh, this is, uh, you can see from the picture there, 127, what a magnificent structure this was. And uh, let me assure you, that reconstruction is not based on guesswork. That's authentic. Based on things that were found and descriptions that were known of it. And um, the order to Zeus on this, uh, or involved in this magnificent pediment and, and base here, may have been the thing that was called the seat of Satan in the letter to the church at Pergamon. 
and the risk this, you see, uh, may have been also especially offensive. Uh, question 114, the title commonly given to Zeus. Now, Zeus, you see, uh, in the old Homeric pantheon, the chief of the gods, in Latin, Jupiter, which is uh, Dios Pater, Deus Pater, Jupiter, in Sanskrit, Dios Pater, which is all cognate, uh, Skyfall, Jupiter, or Zeus, uh, a pagan divinity. Did Zeus or Jupiter have the attributes of divinity? Well, did uh, I tell you about the time a friend and colleague of mine in Manchuria was interviewed by a Japanese official about the emperor, meaning Hirohito, and the puppet emperor in Manchuria that had been set up? And he asked this missionary, whose name incidentally was Johnson, what he taught the Chinese Christians about the person of the emperor. And this uh, Irish, I guess he was, North Irish missionary, was quite uh, canny about this and not going to stick his foot in his mouth if he could help it. And uh, he said, well, we teach that the emperor is the head of the state and therefore ought to be honored by the citizens. Don't you teach that he is divine? Well, you see, officer, when we say divine, we don't mean the same thing you mean when you say divine. When we say divine, we think of the incommunicable attributes of deity, such as omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, by which we mean God is everywhere, he knows everything, and he can do anything. Now, do you really mean to say that the emperor of Japan is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent? Yes. How can that be? Well, he is everywhere in the person of thousands of spies and secret agents that he's put around the world. He's omniscient because he has the voluminous and detailed reports that these people are constantly sending into him by secret shortwave radio. So there's nothing going on in the world that he isn't informed about. And omnipotent? Why, of course, nobody would ever dare to violate a law or a decree or an edict once he has issued it. Now, of course, this is not what we mean by saying God is, has these incommunicable attributes. And obviously, the Emperor of Japan, he later admitted this himself, he was only a human. Why, it come down to ask me, but only a human. And uh, Zeus isn't even a human. He's a myth. Not even a human. But even uh, taking Zeus at face value, according to the uh, popular Greek notion of Zeus, but he had the attributes of divinity. All right, he would not. According to Greek thought, there is something out beyond the gods. They are not ultimate. There is a blind fate or destiny out beyond the gods to which even they are subject and to which even Zeus is subject. Therefore, as the Gnosis book that we use in the Christ religion said, the gods of the Greeks are contained within the total framework of time and history. Therefore, they are only supermen. The true God of the Bible is beyond the framework of time and history. In other words, he is transcended over it and he created it. But the gods of the Greeks are within the framework of time and history, and therefore they too are subject to chance and fate and all these things. Bad luck, for example, and uh, all these things. Now, here, what did the people at uh, Pergamon call Zeus? What was the title they added to the word Zeus? 
Who's the Savior? Who's the Savior? If you were a Christian living in Pergamum at that time, you couldn't hear this without being deeply disturbed and irritated by it because you would say Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And this cannot be in any true sense the Savior. Now a church in the Japanese occupied China that I helped to found and was working in was closed by police action. And the thing that brought this storm down on our heads was a little fact that we had circulated about the nature of Christianity and the purpose of our mission, which ended with a quotation from the book of Acts, Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And the secret police pounced on that and said this is contrary to the dignity of the emperor. Everybody knows we are saved by the emperor of Japan, and you say there is no other name under heaven except the name of Jesus by which you must be saved. Now, we tried to explain to him that we didn't mean the same thing by saved that he meant. Uh, using the word saved in the ordinary sense, who is it that uh, builds the Navy to keep enemies away and so forth, the ordinary uh, providences and so on, uh, just as in the um, British anthem or hymn that corresponds to my country to the Z, they sing, God save the Queen. Uh, this means what only God can do. They don't believe the Queen can save us from our sins. And we were perfectly willing to admit that the Emperor of Japan could uh, save the people from being victimized by unjust officials, maybe, or something like that. But uh, if we were seeking of salvation in a uh, metaphysical and spiritual sense that is very different from anything that Hero East hoped to do. Not a bit of difference. We had to quit. It gave us about two weeks to do it. A signboard came down off that building, and after that, all Christian services in that town were held in secret. We didn't stop, but we uh, had to quit holding them openly and the above board and do it in secret. Because of this scripture verse, neither is there salvation in any other. Well, uh, if we had to have a showdown, I'm glad it came over that verse and not over some passing thing. At least we had a clear issue there that we were standing on that we could tell people about. Now, it's no wonder that um, the Christians at Pergamum would be um, deeply offended by an altar in their city, and also magnificent and grand and everything, dedicated to Zeus the Savior. Zeus Soter. Zeus the Savior. And uh, that uh, the letter to the church of Pergamum would um, speak of, I know where you draw where Satan's seat is. This is not the throne of Zeus, this is the throne of Satan, or the devil, who is... Uh, uh, let's say, stirring up people to worship Zeus instead of to worship Jesus Christ. Now, there was a uh, image, let's say, or a piece of this order that is said to have gotten to London. This is page 127. Uh, curiously enough, examination by experts from the British Museum of the battered marble figure of a giant which had been lying for years in the junkyard of the Workshop Town Council in the London suburb has led to a startling conclusion. This statue, it's just a bomb broken up piece, may be one of the missing figures surrounding the Order of Zeus. How did the giant from Satan's seat get to London's workshop? 
some careful sleuthing appears to establish the fact that it came from Asia over two centuries ago to form part of the collection of the Earl of Arundel. This was an Englishman who collected antiques from the Near East. And so on evil days, when workshop manner, the Arundel family seat was broken up. Now, there is the value of that at this point. 